Our call to worship this morning comes from Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and settle at the farthest limits of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light around me become night, even the darkness is not darkness to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. Our opening hymn this morning is a bit of a golden oldie, and I know it was a favourite of Kerr, uh, but it's a beautiful hymn to sing together, When Morning Gilds the Skies. And if you're able and would like to, you're invited to stand as we sing. going to come to God in prayer. I will lead us in uh, a guided prayer and then at the end of that we're invited to join together in the prayer that Jesus taught his friends, the Lord's Prayer, in whichever version and whichever language feels the most natural and of course if you're not sure of the words there will be a version on the screen as well. So let's pray together. God of the morning, we worship you. Whether skies are blue or grey, whether the sun shines or cold fog shrouds the earth, you are present and your love is from everlasting to everlasting. 
God of the day, we worship you. Whether we are hard at work or enjoying times of leisure, whether we are having fun or weighed down with care, you are present and share our every waking moment. God of the evening, we worship you. Whether we relax with a sense of a day well done, or busily attend to practical tasks as yet undone, you are present, silently coming alongside us. God of the night, we worship you. Whether we slumber peacefully or sleep fitfully, whether we are plagued by nightmares or dream lovely dreams, you are present, watching over us in love. God of all times, God of this time, present around us, among us, within us. Here and now we offer you our worship in the name of Jesus, who taught his followers when they pray to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, for ever and ever.
Does anybody know who this person is? Oh, quite a few people. Sheila's straight in there. Sheila, who is it? It's Michael Rosen. Michael Rosen. And who, who is Michael Rosen? What does he do? He was, he used to be the poet laureate, he, and he does a lot of work with children. Yeah, he was, he was the children's laureate, so he was the one who wrote stuff for children. Does anybody know anything that he wrote? Yeah, there we go. <laughs> Lots of people know we're going on a bear hunt. Who knows that book? Who's enjoyed that book at some time? Yeah, lots of us. But who knows this book? <coughs> Elaine knows this book. Louis, do you know this book? Well, I thought it would be good today to share this book. It has got pictures in, but they're quite small. So um, if you want to see the pictures, you probably need to come to where I am. Um, otherwise, I'll just stand and read it, and nobody will see the pictures. Thanks, boys. Any grown-ups want to come and sit on the floor? They can as well. So it starts off with a picture, a portrait of Michael, Michael Rosen. It says, this is me being sad. Maybe you think I'm being happy in this picture because he's smiling. Really, I'm being sad, but pretending I'm being happy. I'm doing that because I think people won't like me if I look sad. Sometimes sad is very big. It's everywhere, all over me. Then I look like this, and there's nothing I can do about it. What makes me sad, most sad, is when I think about my son, Eddie. He died. He was a grown-up son, but he died. I loved him very, very much, but he died anyway. Sometimes this makes me feel really angry, I say to myself, how dare he go and die like that? How dare he make me sad? He doesn't say anything because he's not there anymore. Sometimes I want to talk about all this to someone, like my mum. But she's not there anymore either, so I can't. I find someone else and I tell them all about it. Sometimes I don't want to talk about it, not to anyone, no one, not at all. I just want to think about it on my own because it's mine and no one else's. What's he doing there? He's in the shower, isn't he? Sometimes because I'm sad, I do crazy things like shouting in the shower banging a spoon on the table, or making my cheeks go whoops, whoops, whoops. Sometimes, because I'm sad, I do bad things. I can't tell you what they are. They're too bad. And anyway, it's not fair on the cat. Sometimes I'm sad and I don't know why. It's just a cloud that comes along and covers me up. It's not because Eddie's gone. It's not because my mum's gone. It's just because. Maybe it's because things now aren't like they were a few years ago, like my family. It's not the same as it was a few years ago. So what happens is that there's a sad place inside me 
because things aren't the same. I've been trying to figure out ways of being sad that don't hurt so much. Here are some of them. I tell myself that everyone has sad stuff. I'm not the only one. Maybe you have some too. Every day I try to do one thing I can be proud of. Then, when I go to bed, I think very, very, very hard about this one thing. I tell myself that being sad isn't the same as being horrible. I'm sad, not bad. Every day I try to do one thing that means I have a good time. It can be anything so long as it doesn't make anyone else unhappy. What's he doing there? Yeah, which team do you think he's watching? Which team would you watch? Um, I can only do it. Would you? Okay. Sometimes I write about sad. Where is sad? Sad isn't anywhere. It comes along and finds you. When is sad? Sad is any time. It comes along and finds you. Who is sad? Sad is anyone. It comes along and finds you. I write. Sad is a place that is deep and dark, like the space under the bed. Sad is a place that is high and light, like the sky above my head. When it's deep and dark, I don't go there. When it's high and light, I want to be thin air. This last bit means I don't want to be here. I just want to disappear. But sometimes I find myself looking at things, people at a window or a crane and a train full of people going past. And then I remember things. My mum in the rain. Eddie walking along the street, laughing and laughing and laughing. Doing his old man act in the school play. Us playing on and off the sofa. You see what they're doing? You do that with your dad. <laughs> no? That's okay. And birthdays. I love birthdays. Not just mine. Other people's as well. Happy birthday to you. And all that. And candles. There must be candles. There he is with a big candle. Thank you very much for listening so well. Everybody feels sad sometimes. That's what this book is about. And it reminds us, whatever age we are, that it's not wrong. And even if you get cross or grumpy or do things that perhaps you shouldn't, it's not because you're a bad person. It's because you're a sad person. And God knows what that feels like. Because Jesus knew what it was like to be sad. One day, one of Jesus' best friends died. And the Bible tells us he cried when he got there. So because Jesus knows what it's like to be really sad, when we're sad, 
we can trust that he understands. And that even if we can't feel it, he's actually there with us to share that sadness with us and help us as we try to find a way through. So we're going to sing a song about that now. And I have to confess it's not a song that I know. I think the tune's fairly easy to pick up, though. Paul, do you want to just play it right over for us before we sing it? The first reading this morning is from Psalm 22, selected verses. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. <coughs> In you, our ancestors trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not human, scorned by others and despised by the people. All who seek me mock at me. They make mouse at me. They shake their heads. Commit your course to the Lord let him deliver, let him rescue the one in whom he delights. Yet it was you who took me from the womb. You kept me safe on my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth, and since my mother bore me, you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. I am poured out like water, 
and all my bonds are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. But you, O Lord, do not be far away. O my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. At the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before him, for dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. The second reading is Psalm 137. <clears throat> By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, and there we wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs, and our tormentors asked for mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How could we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither. Let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem's fall. How they said, tear it down, tear it down, down to its foundations. O daughter Babylon, you devastator, happy shall they be who pay you back what you have done to us. Happy shall they be who take your little ones and dash them against the rock. Amen. start today with a question. You don't have to answer it, but maybe just think about it. What do the following people have in common? Charles Haddon Spurgeon, John Wesley, Mother Teresa of Calcutta, John of the Cross, Christian writer Jennifer Rees Larkin, theologian Reverend Dr John Colwell, the prophets Elijah and Jeremiah, King Saul and possibly King David, Job and Jesus of Nazareth.
Some of them you'll have heard of, others you may not have done, and that's fine. But what unites them is that at some point in their lives, they either felt utterly abandoned by God or that God was palpably absent from their lives. In the case of Mother Teresa, papers published after her death suggest that this experience continued for around 50 years. Charles Spurgeon experienced periods of profound depression that forced him to take time out from ministry. Wesley had repeated periods of doubt and questioning, even after his Aldersgate experience when he said that he felt his heart was strangely warmed. Both Job and Jeremiah are recorded in the scriptures as wishing they had never been born. And David is traditionally attributed with writing Psalm 22, which may or may not have been what Jesus was quoting as he died in agony on the cross. Often referred to as the dark night of the soul, echoing the title of the work attributed to John of the Cross, such experiences of struggle and doubt, questioning, loss of faith, or a sense that God has somehow gone away, are so widespread as to be pretty much normal and natural. In this congregation today, it is pretty likely that there will be people who are experiencing their own dark night. And yet, most likely, will be so embarrassed or ashamed that they'll barely admit it to themselves, never mind anybody else. So we come along every week with this kind of mask of Christian cheerfulness, a bit like Michael Rosen and his smiley face thinking, well, it's just me, everybody else is fine. And whilst it saddens me that that's the case, I think it's completely understandable because it needs an incredible amount of trust to be able to make ourselves that vulnerable. The fear that not only God but also our friends and family and people at church might abandon us if we admit such feelings. That fear can be very real and very overwhelming. So we keep on keeping on, coming along week in, week out, and when somebody politely inquires how we are, we just say, oh, I'm fine. which, as one of the popular aphorisms notes, is simply an acronym for feeling inadequate, needing encouragement. Or there is one that I can't actually say in church because you'd probably be very shocked. Effed, up, insecure, neurotic and emotional. If any of that fine language resonates with your experience now or in the past, just be reassured that it's perfectly okay to feel like that. You haven't failed. You haven't been rejected by God. You're just in a place that is frightening and isolating. Sometimes there can be obvious causes. It could be illness, it could be stress, it could be bereavement, 
but there may be no obvious cause. It doesn't matter why somebody feels like that. The fact that it is, is enough in itself. And of course, there will be some people for whom there never has been and maybe never will be a tangible sense of God's presence or absence. And that's fine too, in the good meaning of fine, not the bad meaning of fine. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Screwtape Letters, has the junior devil, Wormwood, encouraged to make the patient, which is the Christian, dependent on feelings because the lack of feelings will discourage them and cause them to abandon the faith they have in Jesus. My own view is that faith that is dependent on feelings isn't really faith, or at best it's a kind of embryonic faith. Mature faith is so much more than a nice, warm feeling. There are some people that it might be enough just to be reassured that that's okay. What you're experiencing is normal and natural. Though it's not inevitable, I'm sure there are people who don't ever feel like that. But to be able to recognise that even those we perceive as spiritual giants have struggled just as we do can be encouraging. And again, if that's all that somebody needs is just a bit of encouragement to think, well, even Spurgeon felt like that, even Wesley or Mother Teresa felt like that, that's great. But if it's not enough, that's okay as well. When I was doing some research for this service, I chanced across a question that I think is quite helpful for us. And it's just this. How do we see or react to dark nights? Do we see them as something that has to be fixed? That somehow we must put everything right and put it all behind us? Or do we see them, if not quite as opportunities for learning, then at least as experiences through which, given the right support and encouragement, we may actually grow? If we see ourselves as broken because we have this experience and then it cannot be fixed, we feel even worse. But if we can see it for what it is, something that is natural if unpleasant, we may, to our surprise, emerge when morning eventually comes, and it can be a very long time coming, stronger or wiser or more compassionate, or any of a number of other positive attributes. As a little saying I quote far too often, I think it applies here, and it's interesting because it resonates with what Michael Rosen says. Better to light a candle than to curse the darkness. In the context of our own dark night experiences, no matter how awful they are and how powerless we may feel, we do have a choice. We can just give in and let it overcome us and destroy our humanity, making us bitter or hard or whatever. Or we can seek even the tiniest, tiniest flame of hope to defy the gloom. 
might it be that some of the Psalms of lament, the unexpurgated outpourings of raw emotion to God, can be for us such a candle either now or to store away for the future? A very long time ago, just as I was leaving the college where I trained for ministry, I preached with a view, or in our parlance, sole nominee, at a church to which I was con absolutely convinced God had called me. One of my minister friends on hearing the news that I had failed by just two votes to secure that call responded by saying, make like the psalmist. And I knew what he meant, and it's a phrase that I've used with other people since. Lament psalms, sometimes called psalms of disorientation, such as Psalms 22 and 137, are brutally honest in their language and subject matter. If these are addressed to God, then it's startling how honest they are, how much emotion is expressed. To pour out our hearts like this, privately or collectively, might seem quite frightening. But there it is in Holy Scripture, people just saying it to God as it is. And what that tells us is that whatever we need to express, God can take it. No matter how angry or aggressive or vindictive our thoughts, God isn't going to reject us. We won't fully and finally be abandoned because of what we pour out in the darkness. The end of Psalm 137 is especially troubling. Talking about bashing babies' heads on rocks. Rarely do we read it or reflect on it because it is so violent and so cruel. But when I was looking at commentaries this week, one of the commentators took a quote from a book by P.D. James called Original Sin. I don't know if anybody's read that. I certainly haven't. And in the story, there is a conversation between two people, one of whom is Jewish. And the non-Jewish character says to the Jewish character, if I had a God, I'd like him to be intelligent, cheerful and amusing. And in reply, the Jewish character says, I doubt you'd find him much of a comfort when they herded you into the gas chambers. You might prefer a God of vengeance. Dark places can and do lead to expressions of dark emotions and desires. It doesn't make them right. It doesn't make it right to wish that babies get their heads bashed against rocks. It doesn't make us at ease when we read those things or when we say things ourselves, but at least it gives us a sense of here is why it might happen. When you're at your wit's end, maybe you say things that ultimately you wish you hadn't. Psalm 22, which was the appointed one for today, is believed by many, but not all, to have been the source of Jesus' cry of dereliction from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And therefore it is read back as a prophetic foretelling 
that if anyone had had the eyes to see it, they would have realised this was what was going to happen to the Christ. Irrespective of the validity of that reading, and nobody can prove it one way or the other, it existed for centuries long before that event, so it stands in its own right as a psalm born of deep distress, distress and a sense of abandonment of an ordinary human be being, quite possibly David. The word international commentary says this. The sufferer of Psalm 22 is a human being experiencing the terror of mortality in the absence of God and the presence of enemies. In the suffering of Jesus, we perceive God in Jesus entering and participating in the terror of mortality. He identifies with the suffering and dying. Because God in Jesus has engaged in that desolation, he can offer comfort to those of us who walk where the psalmist walked. He then goes on to note the commentator that whilst the writer of the psalm is delivered from death, Jesus is not. Rather, Jesus is delivered through death, or we might say Jesus has defeated the power of death. So did God abandon Jesus on the cross? Theologians and ministers are divided on this one. I absolutely cannot conceive how God could abandon Jesus in that moment. Because to do so would be to abandon God's self and therefore internally inconsistent. What I can conceive is that Jesus, fully human, felt utterly abandoned by God and also by everyone that he knew and loved. To feel abandoned is very real and legitimate, but it's not the same as actually being abandoned. Does God abandon us to our darkness? I really can't believe that that's true either. Even if we cease to believe in God, God does not cease to believe in us. And even if God is silent, God doesn't cease to be there. John Colwell, a theologian who suffers and continues to suffer from bipolar condition, in his book, Why Have You Forsaken Me?, recognises both the particularity or uniqueness of Jesus' suffering and its generality. He notes that our own dark nights, struggles or suffering are uniquely ours. That we may feel abandoned by God and even if we're not surrounded by enemies or abandoned by our friends and family, we may feel very isolated or misunderstood or people may say incredibly unhelpful things, meaning well. He has this to say. The cry of abandonment that Jesus cries is nothing less than our cry of abandonment. His cry is the cry of the child murdered by Herod's soldiers. His cry is the cry of the abused slave. His cry 
is the cry of the woman being raped. His cry is the cry of terror from the gas chamber. His cry is the cry of despair from the one contemplating suicide. His cry is the cry of lament from the psalmist. His is the desolation of every man and woman. Every human cry of despair is unique and particular. The particularity of individual suffering is not abolished at the cross. But every human cry of despair is echoed in his cry. He enters fully into our desolation, our sin, our pain, our abuse, our dying, our death. He becomes what we are, that we, through his entering into this desolation, might become what he is the true humanity that is our destiny and calling. Does God abandon us? No. Can it feel as if God has abandoned us? Yes, it can. Dark nights of the soul are never chosen and are always lonely, difficult places to be. Perhaps we can learn something from the psalmists who certainly didn't mince their words in expressing their feelings. And maybe, just maybe, we can learn to be a little bit kinder to ourselves and to each other. So that church becomes a place where actually it is okay, it is safe enough to admit that we are feeling inadequate and needing encouragement. Let's just take a couple of minutes of silence to reflect on what we've heard. And then I'm going to close with one of the prayers that John Colwell has in his book. Dear Lord, in a world characterised by so much pretense, it is such a relief to pray to the one who honours honesty. You know our hearts in any case. You know the pain we carry, the fears that oppress, the despair that engulfs. You know the disillusionment that would mask your light and leave us in darkness. Forgive us, dear Lord, for every attempt to hide from you. Thank you that you are more than sufficient to handle our fears, our anger, our desolation. Without shame, we turn to you again. In the name of Jesus, the one who cried out in honest forsakenness. Amen. We continue to sing a prayerful hymn, Lord Jesus, think of me and take away my fear. In my depression, may I be assured that you 
on air. let us bring our prayers to God for others and for ourselves. Let us pray. Dear God, the Gospel tells us, let not your hearts be troubled. And with those words in our minds, we would bring our prayers to you this morning. Dear Father, we've come to worship this morning with many issues and concerns occupying our minds. Concerns about the world, a world where the political climate seems particularly uncertain where significant change is afoot, and yet we remain uncertain as to the way ahead. We are concerned about peace and the threat arising again of the nuclear dimension. We are concerned about internal strife and the class of ideologies in so many lands. We are aware of the flow of refugees from many parts of the world, and we feel our own impotence to respond in a meaningful way to the heartache we witness almost daily in our news bulletins. We are concerned about economic issues within our unsettled political climate. We feel unease about our own situation as citizens in Scotland and within our own nation of the United Kingdom and in the challenging context of withdrawal from long-standing alliances in Europe. Lord, we would pray that those who have been invested with power by the democratic process might exercise that power to develop strategies which will seek to promote the good of all. We live in a world where there is so much evident inequality. Vast differences persist between the haves and the have-nots, between those who enjoy comfortable housing and those have to, who have to struggle to get a roof over their head, 
between those who enjoy good health and the expectation of long life and those in many lands, including our own, who die an early death due to malnutrition and deprivation and disease. We pray for all those who are seeking meaningful employment. Many have invested years in their education and training and yet find it so difficult to find a job. We pray that we may not become they not, may not become disheartened or depressed and that every effort might be made within our society and economy to accommodate all who would work. We are conscious of the continuing changes in the world of work due to robotics and artificial intelligence which continue the process of deindustrialization, which began some centuries ago. We would pray that positive benefits might arise for all of our society and, uh, and, and out of the new developments in communications, in manufacturing, in information technology, the health sciences, and in many other spheres. As well as our concerns for the world at large, of which, of course, we are a living part, we would also wish to bring our prayers before you for ourselves. We pray for our church fellowship as we gather here each week. May we know your blessing as we meet away from our former location. May we be even more conscious of our need to draw closer to each other in fellowship as we seek to sustain our church life. May each of us seek to be a blessing to one another. Let us not be ashamed to give each other a group hug as we unite as a family in this place. Finally, we bring our unspoken prayers for ourselves as individuals. While many may appear to present a confident face to the world, some also suffer deep wounds or carry heavy burdens or live out life in very difficult or complicated circumstances or their minds are preoccupied about their own health or the health of a loved one. Dear Father, who loves each one of us as if we were the only one to love, hear our prayer. And let not our heart be troubled, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Merciful God, we have brought our gifts of money and we pray that you will help us to employ them wisely 
to bring hope and love in a world where both are much needed. Amen. So we've got a nice golden oldie to finish off with. What a friend we have in Jesus. Please stand if you're able as we sing together. May the God of mercy and grace, who in Jesus the Christ has shared the frailty and finitude of human experience, bless us and all people with courage to endure the darkness and companions to journey with us towards the light today and every day. Mm -hmm.